Welcome to Destinations. My guest today is Sarah Jenkins, and I'm so excited to be speaking with you, Sarah. Thank you for being on the program. Thank you for having me. You've done so much, I barely even know where to begin. Shall we begin at your olive grove? Yes. So uh, my family bought a tumble-down farmhouse in a very, I don't know how to describe this, it was a distressed area of Tuscany in the early 70s, -hmm. kind of on the cusp of Italy's great post-war economic boom. But at the time, it was a community of peasant farmers more or less living their lives as they had for centuries. And we had the house for many years, we lived in Italy for many years, and then eventually we moved back to the States. And my mother fretted about the land and how to preserve the land. And, you know, every year the forest kind of encroached a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's an expert on olives and olive oil and Mediterranean, the Mediterranean diet. And she decided to plant olive trees. I think they got planted in 95. Traditionally, people had several olive trees on their estate to produce whatever they needed for the year. And she planted 150 olive trees in 95, and probably about 10 or maybe as much as 15 years ago, we started having enough to really regularly harvest and produce. Very exciting. Um, Right? It's still, it's it's a tiny production. We're lucky if we get 120 liters of olive oil a year. So it's something I have as a special treat in my restaurant, and it's something that keeps the family in fine extra virgin olive oil throughout the year. Wow. And uh, nothing wrong with that, because no. the really good stuff is hard to come by. It's really hard to come by. It's a confusing subject for a lot of people, and honestly, the Italians don't make it any easier. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me why that's so, in your opinion. Uh, well, Italy has a premium attached to the olive oil, right? But in fact, the truth of the matter is that Italy does not produce anywhere near the amount of olives or olive oil that it would need to match its export. So Italy buys olives from other less prestigious Mediterranean countries, Turkey, Spain, Greece. Croatia, uh, maybe? Tunisia, yeah, probably Croatia, too. And, you know, it all gets bundled up and the big producers are about making money and there's all kinds of horrible things that happen to the oil and who knows whether what you're getting is really what it says. The most easy way to know that you're buying fine quality olive oil is to buy it from a trusted source and also to buy an olive that's proud to state that it's estate bottled and produced and to put an expiration date on it. There you go. How long does a good olive oil last? Not that long, really only about a year. I mean, Okay, so the flavor is at its most pronounced and dramatic when it's first pressed. It's a really lively, bright, peppery, almost kicks you in the back of the throat. Mm. And over the year, that flavor slowly goes down. Uh, The oil is still plenty good for cooking as long as it doesn't turn rancid. And I will say that it turns rancid fairly easily. Heat, light, uh, if it's not been properly filtered at some point, all of those things can destroy it. Let me ask you this. I just got back from Croatia, and the potatoes there were baked, and then I'm not sure how they did it, but they were roasted in this olive oil. I swear I have never had, like, a flavor explode in my mouth like that. That's the olive oil, isn't it? It is. It could be the potatoes, too, but... um. (laughs) (laughs) The combo was just... But it is is the olive oil, and that reminds me... So, you know, in the Mediterranean, we cook with olive oil, right? People Mm -hmm. have been cooking with olive oil for 3,000 years, and the tradition would be to cook with your leftover old olive oil, and then what was new and fresh that year is what you use on salads and Mm -hmm. condiments and things like that. Got it. So I grew up 
cooking with extra virgin olive oil as a chef. It's a signature part of my making Italian food taste like Italian food. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you the number of kitchens I've walked into or young cooks that have come to work for me and they don't know that they've been taught that you can't cook with olive oil to begin with. Because of the temperature point? Because of the temperature point, which my mom says is a fallacy anyways. I can't quote her 100% on this, but the flash, the burn point is much higher than what's commonly bandied about. Good to um, know, because I really do prefer to cook with it. it. Well, it adds so much flavor to the food. And I would watch in these kitchens that I worked or these young chefs, and they would cook stuff in a neutral oil, a grapeseed oil, a corn oil, a sunflower oil, whatever. And the food, honestly, to me, didn't taste very good. And then they'd throw a tablespoon or two of butter into it, and then it would taste good. Yeah. And I wrote a piece. I had a very brief career writing for The Atlantic Online, and I think it's still out there. And I wrote a piece about cooking with extra virgin olive oil. And, of course, one of the things people always say is you ruin the oil, right? And I say, but you ruin the butter when you cook with it, right? Sure, sure. Nobody's hanging on to their butter and hoping to reuse it. So um. (laughs) You have a point there. Right. Now, Sarah, this is a travel show, so you have something kind of unique uh, around your olive oil production Mm -hmm. company. I mean, you tend to invite people to your property. I do. Um, We have a few people who've come back year after year, but most people, as excited and as good a time as they have and as much as they want to come back the next year, you know, it's an investment, right? You got to get yourself over to Italy. Uh, You have to pay something to our neighbors who put you up, uh, no matter what, it costs some money. And once you've had the experience, maybe unless you're as obsessors and saying as we are in my family, you kind of (laughs) move on, you know? (laughs) What would a typical stay at your place involve? So it's usually a week to 10 days, right? It's very isolated and we're there to pick the olives. So basically it's kind of a furious pace of picking as many olives as you can all day long. And then in the evening, uh, we do have internet now, unfortunately, but there's no television. There's nothing like that. Um, And so generally we just sit around and cook and have a great meal and drink a lot of wine. Right. Okay. Well, you know, I've had worse days. <laughs> right. Right. It's um, it's a really magical experience, I find, being out in the olive groves. You know, Mediterranean people feel like olive trees have souls, and I see why. You can be in a large group of people, and often, you know, I pick up these friends from all over the place. They don't necessarily know each other, so there's a lot of kind of introductory chatter going on, and you can be in the thick of all kinds of discussions, you know, political, intellectual, whatever, food, the culture of the region we're in. But if you get bored of that, you can also wander off deep into the grove and be completely by yourself amongst Mm. the trees, just sort of rhythmically picking. Love that. Um, Love that. And yeah. now, now say our week is over at your at your olive grove, what kind of day trips would you take or where would you go next? So we're fairly close to Siena and Arezzo. Siena is, well, the town that we're nearest to is Cortona, which we all bemoan how famous and fabulous it's become ever since Under the Tuscan Sun was published. Yes. But much as I blame Frances Mays, I think it really wasn't her. It was just that book happened at a time when <laughs> Tuscan tourism was growing, and it would have it would have been inevitable. Absolutely. Um, and I tend to promote Arezzo, which, as the regional the regional capital, is it's not as touristed as say Siena, which is crazy, mm-hmm. and yet it's still a very beautiful town with some incredibly important artwork in it. I also we're really close to the border with Umbria, and I tend to head down to Umbria. 
I have some friends in a small town called Bivania, about an hour away. And it's a gorgeous old town that was built as a Roman outpost, I don't know, 2,500 years ago. Still has various remnants of it, has some really sensational restaurants, a butcher shop, a wine bar that I love. Do you happen to know the name of that wine bar by any chance? uh, Yes, it's called the Bottega di Asu, spelled A-S-U. And she's... She's, it's kind of my dream. Um, every time I go there, I'm like, why don't I run a place like this? Why don't I have a place like this? And of course, <laughs> the success of it all has everything to do with who she is and where she is and Italy and all of that. It's a tiny little wine bar with a great wine list and some great food. And it's all very eclectically sort of designed by her with all this white Deruta pottery, which the Deruta pottery tends to be really highly painted in the Italian style. And that's, of course, beautiful. But to see it with nothing but a white glaze is Mm. really fun. Mm. So, yeah, I love that place. (laughs) So you go to the wine bar and you're in Umbria. What else do you do on a day like that? Well, we might go visit a winery because there's a lot of wine produced and Mm -hmm. buy some wine or taste some wine or... I might want to check somebody out whose wine I've been drinking. My friend Salvatore lives down there, and he has an incredible garden. And sometimes on a good day, we hang out in the garden and have lunch. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. And, of course, you are in the heart. I mean, there is uh, a famous Roman mosaics in the town. It's really something to see. And you're in the heart of cultural Italy. So you're a stone's throw from Assisi. um, and some other great towns, Spello, Foligno, uh, all of those are filled with little known and little touristed, um, you know, cultural icons. Yeah. What's your must do in Assisi? So I avoided Assisi for years because as a child, it was one of the first places in Italy that was just so insanely about tourism. Mm-hmm. But I started doing a porchetta tour in the spring in Umbria with some friends of mine, and we stay right behind Assisi. And my friend was just like, you can't have these people here and not take them to Assisi. So we went up and we went through the church. And that church, through thick and thin and through crowds of people or not crowds of people in there, is to be seen. I actually refer to Assisi and the the whole church complex perched on the hill there as the medieval version of the World Trade Center. Um, Because I sort of imagine coming along on a horse, you know, a thousand years ago, and there's nothing there, and then that complex just rears up. You you know, you can see it from miles and miles away. Magical. And it was a symbol of power as well as learning and spirituality. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned Porchetta. Can we talk about that for a minute? Yes. So uh, I grew up eating porchetta in Cortona at the Sunday market. Can we tell our audience what it is in case they don't know? Yes. Usually it's a whole pig that's been gutted and stuffed with highly spiced seasonings as well as all the innards. And then it's roasted in a wood-fired oven and it sits on a market truck and people slice it off and throw it into a roll for you, a crusty roll. it's, It's like an easy lunch. Sometimes you buy the porchetta and might take it home and reheat it and serve it with some beans and greens or something. Mm -hmm. Because our house was in Tuscany, I always thought of this as really classically Tuscan. It's maybe not. It's maybe more Roman. And what's kind of interesting about, there's a weird line, like I think of Umbria and Tuscany are very similar. The landscape's really similar. The history in some ways is very similar. And yet there's a weird line 
Umbria was part of the Vatican States, and so it's dominated by the culture of Rome. And Tuscany, of course, is the culture of Tuscans, the Medici, uh, all of that history. Yes. So there is some real culinary and cultural differences there. And I think that porchetta, well, porchetta is now pretty much ubiquitous throughout Italy. It really came up out of Rome. Now, somebody's going to squawk and say that, no, 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 the Etruscans made it, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the same to me when it's in my mouth. Oh, right, so beautiful. Right, right, yeah. right. You also have another restaurant. So I have two restaurants. I have a restaurant in New York called Porcena, which I opened nine years ago and is sort of a classic Italian, Tuscan, Roman style trattoria, really, uh, with a spoon focus on pasta. But about three years ago, in fact, yes, definitely three years ago, I moved up to Maine, which is where I'm originally from. I kind of was over the city in a lot of ways. And I opened a restaurant in the small um, coastal community that my family lives in and where I come from. And, and what's that called, name? That's called Nine of June, and it's in Rockport, Maine. And uh, it's a little bit different. It's still very heavy Mediterranean slant. But it's more, I would say, I hate the word destination restaurant, but in a way it is, you know. Um, and it's very challenging up here. It's a real seasonal style of life. So right now we're just heading into like our most insane busy season. It's a madhouse. It's a zoo. In January, we'll be back to doing 20 people at night. And okay. so I'm trying to always balance both the people, you know, I have people calling me right now, you know, can I get a reservation? I'm like, could you dine with me in January? <laughs> yes, I can have a reservation. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, creating a sense of community. And it's, you know, I mean, people up here in the middle of January aren't necessarily looking for a destination to go out to eat. They're looking to get a nice, simple, comfortable, good tasting plate of pasta. And crusty bread. Right. Oh. Now, how do you source your goods from Maine if you need a morel mushroom? Do you source from Tuscany? or? Uh, no, I, a morel mushroom, there's actually a purveyor up here. They source them from the Pacific Northwest. But in general, an awful lot of the product we get up here is directly sourced from farms. Uh, I deal with a fish place down in the town below me, Rockland, that, uh, you know, they're buying from local fishermen and it's not exclusively buying from local fishermen either. We do get some other stuff in, but we just finished halibut season and that was just amazing. You know, uh, it's really random lobstermen are out there catching a halibut and bringing it in mm. and the quality and freshness of it is stunning. And how would you prepare that halibut? Um, mostly we just kind of sear it and use a little butter because I have to say halibut <laughs> goes really well with butter. Um, <laughs> sea salt. That's, right. That's most of what we do. We get these steamers. Maine is famous for their steamers, which are also called soft shell clams sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's what's mostly used for fried clams. And usually, you know, every seafood shack has them. They're steamed uh I think just with some salty water and then you kind of, you sort of peel this outer skin off of them and you dip them in the hot salty water and then you mm. dip them in butter. And that yeah. is the thing. Mm. So I do them here, but I do them with parsley and garlic and chili pepper and olive oil and throw them over bread like we were in Italy. <laughs> so basically everyone wants to be your best friend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, okay, if we were to do that destination trip to Maine, what else would we do besides uh, go to your restaurant every single night? 
Well, there's so much outdoor activities up here, biking, hiking, being out on the ocean, out in the water. And as a tourist destination, there's a ton of boat trips. There are schooner trips that go out for an hour. There are schooner trips that go out for a week. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is to take the ferry from Rockland out to Vinyl Haven, which is about an hour, 15-minute ride, and then walk into town. And there's a great seafood restaurant there called Nightingale. And then I have lunch and I have a glass of wine and then I walk back and I take the ferry back. And it's yeah. like I've had a vacation without doing very much. I love that. That is great. Well, I don't know where to go first, Maine or Tuscany. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> How much time do you still spend at your olive grove? I really, since I moved up here and summer being my really busy season, I get to go in October and early November, and that's kind of about it. I haven't even gone in the spring for the Pluquetta yeah. tour for the last two years. I made my mother do it for me. <laughs> so that's you're, you're going in time for the harvest then, right? If I do nothing else, I will find time for the yeah. harvest. All right. Well, Sarah Jenkins, it's been an entire pleasure to have you on the show. We really appreciate all the insight and all the delicious, delicious meals you've got before my eyes dancing. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And I will see you at... Uh, 9 of June. 9, 9 of June. June. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Th okay, great. Thank, Thank you, you, Sarah.